If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Daniel 7. We were actually continuing the sermon from last week. When I looked up, I didn't have enough time to complete what needed to be said. So you may have the notes from last week. If for some reason that you don't, I don't plan on referring to them too much today at all. Uh, but uh, the content that will help explain a little bit more of what we're touching on uh, is in the notes. So if you have them, great. If not, there's been uh, more copies that have been made uh, back there. But I want to take you to uh, Daniel 7. What we're going to look at is the thesis statement of the Bible. Because for a long time, we've been convinced that what the Bible is about is it's about salvation, and it's not. The Bible has salvation in it. The Bible talks about salvation. The Bible gives a clear directive about salvation. And it says that everybody needs to be saved because Jesus has died for all people. But the Bible is about something greater than salvation. Salvation leads to something. And so in chapter 7 of Daniel, verse 13, Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Who's that? It's Jesus. So write that in. Everybody got your pen, right? That's one of those click moments. Write that in. And he came up to the Ancient of Days. Does anybody know who the Ancient of Days is? The Father. Okay? Now this is amazing because we are getting a glimpse into the eternal to see something that happens. And it says here, and he was presented before him. Now what's interesting about that is in Jesus's life, he always lived a life that was submissive to the Father. He was not inferior to the Father, nor was he ever superior to the Father. Being part of the Trinity, he is equal with the Father, but Jesus in his life models a voluntary submission to the will of the Father at all times. In doing so, notice that he comes and he presents himself before the Father. Verse 14, and to him was given, given from who? The Father. The Father gives the Son something. So notice this. And to him was given dominion, that is dominance, the right to have authority, glory, that is the Everybody remember that? Right? That's the reason he is to be praised. All, all um, Anything that would be prestigious and good and worthy about any entity. Well, that's all of it's been given to Jesus. And a kingdom. Now, some of your translations probably have the word sovereignty there, do they? If they do, raise your hand if you've got a translation that says sovereignty. Okay, so a couple of you, two, three of you do. Notice that the words sovereignty, when we talk about God as sovereign, sovereign and kingdom, as it's mentioned in the New American Standard, they're interchangeable phrases. Sovereign does not mean he meticulously controls every single little thing you do, including your breath. That's not what that means. If that were the case, then he would control when you sin and he would be responsible for sin. That's not God. But what it does mean is that he does have kingdomness, over you. So notice this kingdom, this right to be a ruler is given to Jesus. And it says here that all the peoples, everyone, nations, and men of every language might 
serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The Bible is about the kingdom of God. That's everything that it's about. And everything leads to that point. Everything moves to that point. Everything has that end as a goal. Now let me stand on a little soapbox for a second and say I am so tired of hearing Christians talk about how we are building the kingdom. I'm going to let you in on a secret. We're not. Because we can't. I'm tired of hearing Christians talk about how we're doing his kingdom work. We're not. We can't. Jesus alone establishes his kingdom. Jesus alone does the kingdom work. I said it earlier. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I return, I will draw you unto myself. That where I am, you may also be. Everybody know that song? Where I am. And you may also be... Is that too contemporary for everybody? Okay. That's like the only song I like past the Gaither era of the 60s, okay? That's about it. But the whole idea is, right now, Jesus is working in a place. And it's interesting that the word there is not many rooms, it's many mansions. Many mansions inside a place that he is working on for you and I. When he returns, that's the rapture, and calls us unto himself, we will be with him always. What is he working on right now? He is building his kingdom. And his kingdom is a literal place where we will dwell in complete harmony with him when he establishes it. You and I don't do that. It is only by his grace that you and I are included in it. Because it's going to be perfect. In fact, what does it say here? He's going to have dominion, it's going to be glory, and it's going to be sovereign. It's going to be beyond anything we could possibly ask or think. God's going to establish a kingdom. He's going to do that through his son, Jesus Christ, of which he is given the right to rule. Now, with that in mind, we need to be very careful about the details of Scripture. Turn with me to John, or I'm sorry, Matthew 3. I actually read a quote from a preacher. It said, every time that Jesus is talking about repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, he's actually talking about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's a real strange way to word that message. I believe it is something different and that God has a point. Look at Matthew chapter 3. And we're going to start at verse 1 and just look at two verses. And I want to show you a couple other things. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Where's Judea? Anybody vacation there recently? Okay, But where is it? The what? The southern section of what? Israel. So chances are the audience is predominantly who? You guys are perfect Bible scholars. This is great. You guys are going to do awesome in hermeneutics class. I love it. Help if I could say it. Verse 2. He says, repent for, here's the reason why you should, the kingdom of heaven is at hand or is near. 
John does not give an explanation of what this kingdom is because the Old Testament already tells us in full. His audience, made up of Jewish people, are not ignorant to this idea of what the kingdom is. But his message is significant because he is now giving an urgency attached to it. Now, we looked at the temptation of Jesus, right? Everybody turn over one chapter to chapter 4. After the temptation of Jesus, we find, look at chapter 4, verse 7. From that time, Jesus began to preach, to herald, to proclaim is the idea, and say, notice his message, repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, here's a question. Why is the kingdom of heaven at hand at this time? Who is Jesus? He's the king. It's not Elvis. It's Jesus. He doesn't need a a white rhinestone jumpsuit. There's not a whole lot of shaking going on. There's nothing about jailhouse rock. He still wants you to love him tender, though, right? But notice, that's enough, right? That's enough. It's like, okay, it's getting bad. But Jesus is the king. And Jesus has no problem proclaiming the same message as John the Baptist to a specific audience about the immediacy of this kingdom coming. Something, something stirring over there. Does everybody see this? Some things are starting to come about. And here's the reason why this would make sense to a Jewish mind rather than us sitting here in Portage, Wisconsin. The idea is because everything since the king of Solomon, his kingdom, it all got split up, got all messed up, and people were trying to still enjoy the glory days and live nostalgically and all this stuff. But it was all dwindling downhill, going down the drain, and they're thinking, good grief, what in the world is going on here? And so then you have the prophets on the scene and they're constantly telling Israel, stop sinning, get away from your idols, pursue righteousness. God is the one who takes care of you. God will restore everything that you have lost. But if you don't, he will scatter you. So this message here resonates with them in a euphoric way. I don't know if you guys have known this. The only reason why I know it is because my wife used to teach literature in high school. Has anybody noticed this burst of utopian novels? Anybody notice that? The Hunger Games. Anybody seen that? Yeah, you put a lot of kids in a huge cage and they scrap at each other until one comes out alive. Yeah, I love it. Teen fiction. Mm. Did you know that there's actually a section in Barnes & Noble that's vampire teen fiction? Teens, what is y'all's obsession with vampires? Anybody? Anybody? You don't have a good reason. Why? You're in church, and this is when reality really struck you about how you're wasting your life. Exactly. (laughs) That's the reason why. But we get wrapped up in all that kind of junk. There There is this new unleashing of literature that is constantly pointing to what does it look like to have a utopian society? where all things are perfect and everybody can just dwell in harmony and everybody's doing their own thing and we all just get along. If you've ever read the Maze Runner series and things like that, they've made movies out of all this stuff. You know what's amazing about it? You cannot find God in any of these novels. And you know what you find about the novels? They never end like they should. 
not one time. See, here's the interesting thing. We all get this sense that there's something great coming. We all get this idea that a kingdom is what should be the ideal situation that we live and breathe in. And so we even find people who are pagans apart from God still trying to come up with this idea. And they're trying to do so apart from the revelation that God has clearly given. See, everybody's moving in that direction. Everybody wants that deep down. There's something in us, C.S. Lewis said this, there's something in us that cannot be satisfied by anything in this world. So what that tells me is obviously the thing that I need satisfaction for most doesn't reside here, but in another world. That's exactly what history is moving towards. Notice that Jesus' message is the exact same. The king is on the scene. Now, let's everybody get in our DeLorean and fast forward to Matthew chapter 9. Anybody get that reference? Praise God, good. Jumping gigawatts, right? Chapter 9, verse 35. This gives you Jesus' modus operandi, his method of operation. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages. He was out amongst the people, teaching in their synagogues. Who's his audience? Jews. So that seems like the right place to start, right? At least those people in the synagogues will be devout about the Old Testament Scriptures. And he says here, and proclaiming the gospel of the what? Is that the gospel of the grace of God through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection? Is that what that is? It's not. Does everybody know that there are different gospels in the Scriptures? Is that new to anybody? Ooh, that's fun, okay? Let me show you a for instance real quick. Can we take a little trip? I guess, Pastor, right? I got the mic. Thank you, Jim. Exactly. Everybody put your finger here, your bulletin or whatever. Turn to Revelation 14. The word eongelion in the Greek means good news or glad tidings. And this isn't anything derogatory I'm saying. It is predominantly a generic term. It means that it could be used in many different things depending on where the context points you. Chapter 14 of Revelation. Look over at verse 6. And I saw another angel, another messenger, flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel. Aeonius Evangelion is the idea. Notice, it's, it's, it's eternal good news is the idea behind it. It says here, to preach to those who live on the earth. Now, this is during the tribulation time, and this is a good news message to preach to those who are unbelievers on the earth. Okay? Everybody got that? Everybody, everybody with me? Yes? Okay, nod your head so I can hear the marbles. Praise the Lord. Okay. <clears throat> so here we go. Notice, to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people, which is often used to speak of Gentiles, okay? And here it is, verse 7. And he said with a loud voice, here is the contents of his gospel. Fear God. That's the number one thing. He is telling these unbelievers during the tribulation, 
Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. Does that sound like good news? You know what's interesting about this? It tells me that judgment can be considered good news. See, we don't like to think about that because judgment, bad, Jesus, good, right? That's how we think about things a lot of times. But judgment is actually a positive part because it means God is going to make all things right. I mean, it, when we talk about that we're designed for a kingdom, do we realize what we're, what we're asking for? Do we realize when he says, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, holy be your name, your kingdom, hold it. Do you realize that when you pray that prayer, what you're praying for? You're praying for judgment. God, please end this current world system and Christ come back and establish righteousness where he rules with the rod of iron and puts all sin to justice. That's what you're praying for. That's a heavy prayer. Now, if you've lived too long in this world and you're sick of it, you probably love that prayer. I love that prayer. I love it. But for some of you, you might be like, mm, that's a little, I don't know, man. That gets kind of heavy. It does. But notice in this situation, how is gospel used? Fear God. Worship him. He's a creator of all things. Judgment's coming. That's the gospel for people on earth at that time who don't have Christ. Let's go back to Matthew. So notice he is in the synagogues, going from city to village to city to village. He is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And notice this, he is healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. His message was always accompanied with a ministry. His message is always accompanied with a ministry. This is important for you to know. Because you have two extremes that usually exist today. You have people who want to come in and bark at everybody, telling them how they're going to hell, or let them know they need to turn or burn. Everybody's got a phrase they want to use, right? And then they walk away, leaving the person condemned and confused, without any inkling that the person letting them know the truth about things could give a rip about whether they turn or burn, whether they believe and are saved. That's a problem, because that doesn't resemble anything about Jesus' heart for people. Our mission statement here is loving people to life in Christ. If we're not about that, we're not a church, period, because that's exactly how Jesus did it. He always used a ministry that accompanied his message. The other problem that we have is amongst more of the millennial churches and the emerging churches that have popped up in the last 10 or 20 years. And that is the idea, let's go out and heal everyone and clothe everyone and educate everyone and feed everyone and then let's go home and feel good because we helped them. And usually the way it runs is self-righteous, proud white people want to try to help those poor black people in the ghetto. And it's actually an extension of our racism because we don't see other people as equal in the eyes of God, though we're all created equal, and though we would never use the N-word in public, we'll still think it. It's that type of bigotry that happens within the church 
that is damnable in the eyes of God. They're people. Just like I'm a person. And I need the gospel just as badly as they need the gospel. There is no separation there. The only thing that separates us is the sin that separates us from our maker. And so instead of preaching the gospel, we just want to feel good that we've done ministry and we equate that to it. It's not really about them, it's about us. It's the epitome of selfishness and pride. It is the boiling up of ourselves so that I feel good about me. I really help those people today. Great. They're fed, they're clothed, they're educated, and they have hell as a certain destination. We didn't really accomplish anything, did we? We just wasted resources that God gave us. Notice that Jesus' model of working with people is completely different. There is never a separation of the message and the ministry. You help people, you tell them about Christ. You tell them about the judgment to come. You tell them about sin separates them from a holy creator, but God desperately wants that relationship with them. So he went to great personal cost to bring them alongside himself. Don't separate it. Notice that Jesus doesn't separate it. Notice the next part, verse 36. Oh, if we had the eyes of Christ, watch this. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. When Jesus looked around at the crowds around him, there was something that moved him deeply. He had pity. And look what it says here. Because they were distressed... The word can also mean they were troubled or they were fainted. They were faint of heart is the idea. And they were dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. They were helpless and had no guidance and no direction. Now here is probably the reason why. I don't know for sure, but here's probably the reason why. Has anybody ever heard a word, Talmud? Anybody ever heard that? Or the Talmud? Some people say it that way. Talmud or Talmud. Anybody ever heard that word? Talmud was oral tradition of smart Jewish guys' commentary on the Old Testament. And so what happened was, is especially during the time when Israel had been dispersed into places like Assyria and Babylon, and they were in this captivity time, and they didn't have the Scriptures with them, they had to make all sorts of arrangements in order to remind themselves of the Scriptures. Well, you have, when they come back in here from about 200 AD, I think it was, until about I'm sorry, 200 B.C. till about 280, you had a collection of all these oral traditions that went on. Well, here's what this commentary and this Jewish rabbi says about something going on here in Psalm 40. And you had all this, but the problem was it was all an oral tradition. And so you've got this teaching and this teaching and this teaching and this teaching and this teaching. Right? So imagine every time you come to church and I say, hey, open your Bibles to this. You open your Bibles and then you start slapping all kinds of other stuff on top of it so that you can never see the scriptures. That's what the Talmud was like. So all these people have been burdened down with all of these expectations from a lot of people that obscured the truth of God and his grace. How many of you are in the Deuteronomy class during Sunday school? Raise your hand. Have you noticed so far when we've walked through the law in Deuteronomy that it's full of grace? Have you noticed that? See, we would never know that because we've always been taught it's law, it's bad, it's trying to hurt you, it's trying to restrain you, God doesn't want you to have fun. We always hear that type of stuff. No, you actually find out that it's extremely gracious. But a lot of times we would never know that because of all the junk piled up on top of it. It's almost like 
I want to tread on some thin ice here, right? It's almost like when you have a court ruling that takes place that was based off another judge's decision, who made their decision off another judge's decision, who saw this judge's decision and went off that, but nobody wants to talk about what the basic rule of law is for the land. You get obscured from the truth because a lot of unnecessary junk got in the way. Why are these people so weighed down? Because their leaders had weighed them down. Why did they not have any direction? Because they're getting an opinion from this person, an opinion from this person. Opinion. And next thing, you finally throw your hands up and you go, I don't want to do that anymore because it's too much. You know what that's called? It's called religion. That's what that's called. When people are strapping you down with a checklist in order to be accepted by God, that's religion. And nobody can ever keep it. Why? Because as soon as you think you're doing good, they'll come in and let you know you didn't do great. Man, aren't they loving, gracious? No, you want to kick them in the throat. That's what you want to do. Good grief. Because that's what religion does. It paralyzes the people. It makes them want to give up all hope. Jesus sees this. Jesus is moved. Think about this. Don't, don't, Don't just think of Jesus as just guy Jesus, okay? God's heart is moved to pity and compassion for these people. So look how he deals with it. I love it. Then he said to his disciples, verse 37, the harvest is plentiful. There is no shortage of crop to take in. Okay? But that's not the problem, is it? No, that's the opportunity. Look at the problem. But the workers are what? Uh Uh-oh. Laverne, you ever been in a situation where the workers are few? How's that feel? You throw your hands up, don't you? You call Cheryl. (laughs) For some reason, the Spirit is provoking me to want to say get her done, but I don't know. I mean, I call Cheryl. That's great. But notice that. Jesus sees a problem. There is no end of a harvest that needs to be had. But the problem is, is we don't have enough people that are willing to go out there and be doers. Does that sound familiar? That's not like today. You know people that are lost are starving for righteousness. They don't even know it. Take, for instance, my example with the utopian novels. They're starving for righteousness. They're starving for things to be perfect. They're starving for all things to be made right. And so they are having to fictionally conjure it in order to see it happen. Yet what does the Word of God tell you? It's a reality. Be patient. Believe in Christ. Get your citizenship stamped so that you're in this kingdom. Believe in Him. All the answers right here. In fact, I read a survey one time, not too long ago. One of the biggest reasons why people aren't coming to Christ isn't because they're not willing to believe. It's because nobody's telling them. Because they're not hearing it. Faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of Christ. It's very plain. It's the church's silence that is leaving the harvest out in the field. Why are we so few? You know, I think it's interesting. And I was having a conversation with Chuck about this. We were talking about how at the end of each dispensation, there's always failure. There's a responsibility that's been given 
by God to us. And somehow we fail, and he needs to judge that failure, but then he demonstrates his grace. Does anybody know how the dispensation of the church age ends? I just gave you the answer. Failure. The church fails. The church doesn't fail because we don't have an amazing solid foundation. The church doesn't fail because we've been led by lies. The church fails because nobody is doing anything with what they already know to be true. And so God has us raptured out of the situation. I don't know about you, but it is my solid conviction that as long as I'm the pastor here, we will not be part of the failure. We will be part of the exception. If our brothers and sisters and other congregations want to fail, let that be on their leaders, but not here. Not on my watch. Not now. The harvest is too much. And let's be honest, compared to a lot of people, we got a small harvest here. Portage is what, 11,000 people? How many we got in here? 175 maybe? Pete, how many we got? 161. (laughs) You've been counted. (laughs) Let's say we're going to take 15 away for kids. Let's do 16. Math gets easier that way. 145 of us, you think we can do it? So you don't sound too confident. Why? You scared to be a doer? Is the harvest too much for you? You see what I'm saying? Wait a second. I got God's word. Why am I scared? I have the truth. They're going to think I'm dumb. Yes, because they're lost. Not you. You are found. Don't they need to be found? And doesn't God use people for his purposes? Every opportunity is an opportunity, church. Every opportunity that you come across is an opportunity to be a doer in the harvest. I don't want to stick on this too much because I'm trying to be time respective, but respectful, forgive me. So notice what he says, verse 38. Here's the answer. Here's the answer. Notice it's not, oh my gosh, there's a lot of people, let's go. That's not the first step. Look what he says. Therefore, beseech. Anybody know what the word beseech? Anybody use that word in the past 15 years? Beseech. Anybody? I'm going to start using it, see if I can throw you guys off. Okay? What does beseech mean? Do we know? What? Plead? Beg. Beg. Think about it. Plead. Beg. Look what it says. I'm even in the wrong chapter. Beseech. (laughs) Beg. Ask. Pray. Request. Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers, to send out doers into his harvest. How do you reach a field that needs to be harvested? The first thing you do is you pray. God, please send people out. I didn't come up with that. Jesus came up with that. And notice he's talking to his disciples. Can you imagine? He's moved to this passion, this this pity for these people, and he's kind of looking out, and he gives them a very plain object lesson. Guys, do you see all these people here? All of it needs to be harvested. Everybody needs to know about this message of the kingdom. They're all Jews. They all have the history. They need to know so that they are in it. problem is the workers aren't found we ain't got much to get the job done 
So pray, beg God, send people. Ask him to be making the difference. How do missions get started? How do people end up in the mission field? I'm sorry, don't take this personally. I have no desire to go to Zimbabwe. I just don't. Listening to the Miskimans talk about how their dog is their snake hunter. That brings back Genesis 3 and all signs of hell to me. I don't care to be there whatsoever. But that's the first thing we've ever agreed on. That's great. (laughs) But, but what ignites that passion? Let me ask you this. Is it guilt? Don't you think you should be out on the mission field in a third world country really helping people? Yes, I'm such a horrible sinner. I will go. That's religion. There it is. Forcing me into a position I don't want to be in that God probably hasn't prepared me in, but because I'm trying to earn his favor, I'm going to be out there. God's not going to bless that. Like being a Sunday school teacher. Thank you, Roxanne. Jim, we had this talk in Colorado. Okay. First Corinthians 14, women are to be quiet in the churches, right? Hey, I don't think it's any coincidence that the context of that is all things are to be done decently and in order. Now, you're a Bible student. You, you put those two and two together and see what you come up with. But regardless, the idea is to pray. The idea is to pray. But isn't it like Jesus to lovingly and graciously give the old switcheroo? Okay? That's a technical term. Chapter 10, verse 1, look at it. I love it. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, the names of the 12, real quick, anytime you see the word 12, if you wouldn't mind, find some way to mark that. It's important because your thinking is getting ready to get destroyed here, okay? Now, the names of the 12 apostles, see the word apostles? First time it's been used in the book of Matthew. Ten chapters to get in, apostles. Apostle, in a secular sense, was used of sending out a ship or an envoy, a fleet of ships, in order to carry cargo or a message somewhere in order to accomplish a task. This this word is used by Matthew with that mindset. These are apostles because they are being sent out with a task to accomplish. So notice, the twelve apostles are these. The first Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, verse 3, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, also known as Levi, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and who? Judas Iscariot, and notice Matthew's commentary, the one who betrayed him. Now watch this. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them. Does everybody get the irony here? Guys, do you see the crowds? I move to pity and compassion. The harvest is great, but the doers are few. Beg God that he would send people. And then what does Jesus do? You're going to go and you're going to go. And Thank you for begging God. Guess who gets to go? Isn't that just like Jesus? I need to pray about somebody to go and take it. This is a big situation. I'm, I'm moved and I need to bring this to Jesus. And all of a sudden, I'm the person he's calling to get this done. 
Does God answer prayer? Oh, we wished he would have answered it another way, don't we? Sound like Moses. God, I don't talk good. I can't go. Yes, you can. Who's got control of your mouth? God does. Thinking too small, Moses. Same instance here. Same instance here. Notice this. These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them. Here's what he tells them. Do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Hold on. Jesus just promoted, what do we want to say, sectioned off evangelism. Gentiles? No. Look at the next one. Do not enter any city of the Samaritans. Who were the Samaritans? If we want to be crude about it, they were half-breeds. They were Jews and Gentiles who had cohabitated, and this is their offspring. They live in the middle. You're familiar with John chapter 4, the woman at the well. This is why it was so controversial for Jesus to be there talking to this woman at the well. It's not just that she was a woman. It's that she was a half-breed, and everybody had rejected that entire culture of people. In fact, their conclusion about those type of people, this is how racism was so thick in the, in the New Testament was, well, God just had the Samaritans come along because he needed more fuel for hell's fires. That's the reason why. They're just walking firewood. That goes over really well in a campaign speech, doesn't it? But notice this. Don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans, verse 6. But rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Stop. Go back to chapter 9, verse 36 at the end. They were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a what? Notice. Notice the tenderness that's involved in this situation. Verse 7, and as you go, preach saying, what's our message going to be, Jesus? Tell us. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same message as John the Baptist. Same message as Jesus. Same thing he was teaching back here in chapter 9. Verse 35, as he went to the synagogues, notice, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is a hand. Here's what he gives them. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belt. You don't need money. Or a bag for your journey. Or even two coats. Don't pack your bags to go. Or sandals, or staff. I just have to get my compact and my makeup bag before I go, right? No. For the worker is worthy of his support. Or in other words, your sermon is worthy of the supper. You'll get fed, be faithful. Don't worry about trying to supply your own needs. They'll get taken care of. Notice, let's move on through here because I want to show you something interesting. Verse 11. And whatever city or village you enter, just like Jesus, right, from city to village, You enter, inquire who is worthy in it, who is fitting in it, who is receiving of your message is the idea. And stay at his house until you leave that city. And as you enter the house, give it your greeting. And there was a classic Hebrew greeting that was given anytime they would enter under good circumstances. It said, peace be to this house. It was pronouncing God's blessing over them because they were receptive to God's truth. It says here, uh, let's see, verse 13. If the house is worthy, if it's fitting, give it your blessing of peace. But if it's not worthy, if they don't accept your message, take back your blessing of peace. In other words, if they reject you, don't waste your time blessing them. He says here, verse 14. Whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust 
off your feet. Now pause. Everybody see verse 8? Mitch, can we bring up verse 8 real quick? Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse the lepers. Cast out demons. And don't take any money because this was a message that was freely given to you. Who's he talking to? Stick with me here because it's going to click in a minute and all of you are going to start perspiring, okay? He's talking to who? Oh, be more specific. What word did we say? Nope. Nope. The 12. The 12. Which includes... da 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 Stop. Judas has the power to heal the sick. Judas may have at some point walked into a situation and raised the dead. Is this what we're saying? Could he tell a leper, be clean, and all of a sudden, clean? Could he cast out demons? Judas? You mean the one that Matthew gave the commentary here that said, the one who betrayed him. Does this mean Judas is a saved person? Uh-oh, see, we've got all kinds of conflict now because we've got to make a judgment call. And it's somebody's eternal destiny. I'll go ahead and give you some of my thoughts about it. I think from what we see in John 13, he is not saved. However, Jesus is the one who gave all 12 equally the authority to get this message accomplished. Notice the part about not taking money. That really had to hurt Judas because he was the treasure of the bunch, wasn't he? Now take that and set it in your mind for just a second, and I want to show you this. Look at verse 15. He just talked about if they're not listening to you, shake the dust off your feet, you're done there. But look what he says. Truly I say to you. The Kentucky translation says, I ain't lying. Okay? It will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? It is wiped off the ground. I've actually had a friend who went over to Israel and took pictures. It is still char and brimstone to this day where they believe that city was. There's nothing. It's just flat. You can't even tell anything was there. Just for some reason, that massive plot of land is still dark and charred to this day. It'll be more tolerable for them in the day of judgment, notice, future time when everyone is accountable to Christ, than for the city that doesn't listen to your message that you have to look at them and take a broom or do your feet like this and say, your judgment be on you. Why is this? Here's the reason why, and this makes sense of what's going on with Judas. God gives people the privilege of heightened revelation. There are instances where God so reveals Himself or so shows you Scripture in such a way or so manifests Himself in instances to where the amount of exposure is so 
grand in its scope that you are now accountable for moving forward with the knowledge that you know into faithful action. Let me give you a prime example of this, just thinking off the top of my head. Everybody remember when the Apostle Paul at the end of 2 Corinthians talks about that he was caught up to the third heaven and he saw things that were inexpressible. We all know that, right? We actually kind of like that verse and we're sitting there scratching our heads going, what in the world's going on? And then he got a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. Everybody remember that? Did he have heightened revelation? Like we won't have until we die, right? Did he do extraordinary things for the Lord as a result of it? Everybody see that? This opportunity for exposure into the deep truths of God were to motivate him in such a way as to where he was exemplifying and discharging a faithful ministry. That means all the things of the world had to burn in order for him to be able to exist and move forward with a clear conscience. Does everybody see that? Now think about this idea. More tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah. Turn over one chapter, Matthew 11. Look at this. This is Jesus, chapter 11, verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities. Now stop. Why did he begin to denounce the cities? Where did the 12 go? The villages and the cities. Everybody with me? So they've had exposure to heightened revelation. Like the world had never had at that moment. Why? Because God is in the flesh on earth. Everybody see this? Anybody jazzed about it except me? This is cool stuff. Notice, he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Because even though they saw God in the flesh work, and speak. Lord, if you just heal my son, it'll be well. You don't even need to come and and put your hand on me. It's done for you. Moments notice. Everybody saw it right there. This person's dead. Took him by the hand. Raised him up. And now they get up and start serving. What in the world? What is going on? but they didn't respond to the grand exposure of revelation that they had. So look what it says. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Now here's the reason why that's a little bit of salt in the wound that Jesus is pouring, is because Tyre and Sidon were predominantly Gentile populations. See, that would have made all the difference for the pious, racist Jew of the first century. That's why that sticks so bad for them. Notice it says after this, verse 22, Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Does everybody see the similar pronouncement in language as we just saw before? Look at the next one, verse 23, And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to, what's the word? What's it mean? Hell. See, this isn't blue-eyed, gentle, hippie on the side of the grassy plain Jesus, is it? It's not flower child Jesus. Peace, love. Nope. 
Notice what he's saying here. Capernaum, you think you're going to get out of this because of the heightened revelation that's been given to you and you refused to respond when the Lord went to great lengths to get your attention? No, you're actually going to find yourself in hell. Sounds pretty straight, doesn't it? Sounds like judgment is an integral part of what needs to be told to people. Anybody encouraged today? Let's move on. Notice it says, for, here's the reason why. If the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Stop. Jesus just told us something that would have happened if he would have been there at that time that did not happen. He's telling us the truth. If Jesus would have been in Sodom, and if he would have performed miracles, the entire population of Sodom would have fallen on their knees and cried out because of their gross sinfulness and repented before the Lord at that moment. Look what he says. Nevertheless, verse 24, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Why? Because with heightened revelation comes more responsibility. Last place, we won't spend long. Turn all the way to the right, Second Peter. This is probably the best summation of this principle in Scripture that we desperately need to know. And I'll explain to you why in just a second. Second Peter, it's after what? Good job, I love it. Bible scholars all around, it's good. <clears throat> Second Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2. Look at verse 20. Now pay attention, church. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, how? By the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Sounds like they went from unsaved to saved, doesn't it? Okay, now watch this. They, uh, sorry, <clears throat> they are again entangled in them and the defilements of the world and are overcome by the defilements of the world. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For, here's the explanation, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. Do you feel the weight of this truth? God has put men in this church, women in this church, who have devoted themselves day in and day out, time and time again, through joy and encouragement and through severe disappointment in order to dispense the Word of God. Why? Because we all need to know Him more. The gospel has been shared here over and over and over again. Why? Because all people need to hear and be saved because everyone is a candidate for salvation. But having heard that, and to walk out these doors with the usual pleasantries, 
and not be a person who took the initiative to change or to respond or to seriously play self against truth and say, good night, I fall short. To say in such a way, well, I just wish the preacher would shut up so I could go home. Do you know why I preach so long? I got a lot of my heart, baby. But not just that, so you get it. Pastor Steve's greatest frustration in ministry was people who heard the word but didn't do what it said. James tells us that's deceiving ourselves. Does anybody want to guess what my greatest frustration in ministry is? It's the same. And it's not necessarily because Pastor Steve and I are cut from the same cloth, although I'm thinking we might be related in some way. But it's because that is a truth that God's Word was given to meet so that everyone lives and thinks and approaches life differently. So that all these trappings that we have let invade our personal being that are part of the world system in order to distract us from obedience would be set on fire and burned down and get out of the way so we can start seeing Jesus and falling in love with Him more. If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. It is crystal clear. This is a church, and I knew this before I came here, of heightened revelation. You have had over 40 years one of the greatest Bible teachers I've ever heard in my life. And I'm listening to him right now in my car. Had to pull over because he's convicting me so bad. Can't get on my knees while I'm driving. That whole idea has not changed. The whole idea is that we would come to know God and His plan for history that much more and then ask ourselves the question, and where I'm at in my life compatible with what is coming? If not, it seems that the message here is very clear of what needs to go down, and that is repent. Change your mind about how you're living. Change your mind about how you've compartmentalized Christ. Change your mind about thinking that other things were more priority than Him and His Word in your life. Stop fooling yourself. Stop playing games. Stop coming to church. Start being the church. Now, am I preaching to anyone in particular? No, I'm preaching to all y'all. Why? Because I need to hear it too. Because there, if there is something in my life that is keeping me from knowing God more, it is my enemy. I have rationalized that it's just a good time. It's just a friend. Well, I enjoyed only some of the times. Well, nobody's ever going to know. Well, it's all my fun. You know what that's called? What does James call it? Deceiving yourself. Deceiving yourself. The Word of God calls us to respond. And if He gave such heightened 
revelation. And yet he still moved forward to betray the Savior of the world. You can guarantee it was more tolerable on the day of Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for Judas on the day of judgment. How much more being his already fully accepted and grafted in children should we not respond as a result of the blessings that he lavishly pours out on us? Because I can't think of anything, don't get me wrong, someone hearing the gospel and not believing it, that's bad. Someone knowing the gospel and that there is a new life to live in Christ where the Holy Spirit wants to lead you in the Word and enact change in your, in your life and grow you to be more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? And then to slap his hands away and say, no, I just could not say no to that softball game. Where are you at? In God's plan to change us. And why are you there? And is that where he wants you? Let's pray. Father, you have given us 66 books to know, to know you, to know what grieves you and what gives you joy. To know what pleases you. And to know what deserves your chastisement. We see examples of Jesus walking in real time amongst real people with a very pertinent and revelant Sorry, revelant message. And yet many are not worthy because they have discounted his words. We are a people who have your truth in abundance. Every heart here is ultimately answerable to you. You see where we fail? You're completely cognizant of it. But I pray, God, that your spirit would prick our hearts to make us realize if we're just playing church, if we are not being carriers of the gospel, if we have decided that that's great for Sunday, but that's just not how I live, we are disregarding the new life that you have made available. Father, none of us deserve to be saved at all. Help us to realize that. Not one of us deserves it. And make us thankful that you are so gracious to do what we don't deserve. So Father, if there is a change that needs to be made now, move us to do so. Let us stop living the same, feeding people the same bull, wallowing in the same garbage, returning to the same vomit, playing around in the same mud. 
but live as clean people as we really are because Christ has cleansed us by His blood. So Father, please move us to be different people. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.